Paul, I am really excited to talk about the education system with our guest today on The Modern White Man, the podcast where we discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. The education system is so critical to society's success. You'd be hard pressed to think of an institution more important than the education system. And in being anti-racist, one has to look at the education system. Is it equitable? Do all students have the same opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive? If not, what needs to be done to be more equitable? For those who listened to our two episodes on culture, you probably picked up on the fact that I'm a proud Minnesotan. You know, a lot of Minnesota culture I take for my own personal culture, and I have pride in it. Yet, there is always a huge asterisk in my mind when it comes to Minnesota. And that's that Minnesota's graduation gap between black and white students ranks among the worst in the United States. It's about 88% for white students compared to about 70% for black students. And you can see similar disparities across the country. So to our previous questions, clearly the education system isn't all that equitable. So what needs to be done? Well, Marcus Flynn and Black Men Teach is one organization working towards more equity in the education system. And their mission is to recruit, train, place, and retain Black male teachers in elementary schools. Their goal is for each of their eight partner schools to have 20% of their teaching staff be Black men within six years by which time they will have built a pipeline that will provide 100 black male teachers within 10 years. And Marcus really explains why that is so important. The conversation with Marcus was wonderful. He really explained why having more black male teachers in elementary schools is so important and impactful and provided some clarity to disparities and privilege and even things that we've really missed out on that we may not have ever been aware of, such as simply the importance of identity within authority figures, how important that is. Marcus was one of those people who just have a passion and a very specific passion and is just dead set on a mission. And it was just really inspiring to hear him talk and see the work that it's been done already and it just left me feeling, you know, inspired. And I got goosebumps through a lot of the stories he told and, and things that, that Black Man Teach is doing. And, you know, and, and he, he said himself he had a, a winding career that got him to this point. So a really fascinating story of how he got to being the executive director of Black Men Teach. So it was uh, just a great conversation and, and such a great organization. I love learning about it. Yeah, totally. So Marcus is the executive director of Black Men Teach. And he came to Black Men Teach as a science teacher at Prodeo Academy in Minneapolis. He held prior positions in research and project management at Iowa State University. He joined Black Men Teach to follow his passion for creating educational opportunities for future Black male teachers. An active community leader, Marcus was known to Black Men Teach from his volunteer efforts with its college cohort program which recruits black men to join the teaching profession. And he has served as a volunteer at Raising Readers, mentor for the Connect program, board member of United Way of Story City, president of the Black Graduate Student Association, 
and founder of the Creating the Academic Pipeline program. So as Paul said, you can see just like the passion he has around this and him talking about his path just even shows how much passion and energy he has in this area and what good work he is doing. So we are really just thrilled to be joined by Marcus. So without further ado, we can't wait for y'all to hear this conversation and to learn from this. Here is Marcus Flynn. We are pleased to be joined by Marcus Flynn. Marcus, welcome to the show. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. I appreciate you all inviting me, everything. Happy to be here. Absolutely. It really is our pleasure. And you know, Marcus, I first learned about Black Men Teach when you presented to the company I work for roughly a year and a half ago. And I was so moved by your presentation, I came away thinking, yes, this needs to be done. I'm so happy that this organization exists. And I've been following Black Men Teach ever since. And as Paul and I were thinking of our first couple rounds of guests, I was excited to ask you to share with our listeners the important work that y'all are doing at Black Men Teach. And I think a couple big reasons really jumped to mind for that. For one, it's equity in the education system, right? And the education system is such a critical institution in our society. And for us working to be anti-racist and equitable, we have to look at the education system. And second, I think the approach of Black Men Teach can teach us a lot about barriers, disparities, and privilege that we may not even be aware of. So I just am really excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you again for joining. And to start, can you tell us a bit about your journey and what brought you to be the executive director of Black Men Teach? For sure. It's definitely nonlinear. And it's funny, too. You heard my presentation a year and a half ago. That was like right when I began. It's oh, wow. Was going well from the jump. But I think the story really writes itself, so I can't take credit for that. So, my journey, um, man, so I went to school to be in health science. Like many people, I graduated college or I graduated high school and I did not necessarily know what I wanted to do. And I remember my mom told me to go be a pharmacist and make a lot of money. And at the time, I was like, all right, let me do that. And I remember seeing a pharmacist at Walgreens. And I was like, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. There's no way I can do this. And so I remember thinking like, okay, I'm still in this like science, this health science intersection. And I thought the best decision for me to make at the time was to be a physical therapist. Like, I don't really want to have a job where I'm sitting in the office. Um, you know, there's a potential to own your own practice. So I remember undergrad, that was me. That was my life. In that time, though, I started taking on like a lot of leadership um, roles and responsibilities. And I think that's when I started to kind of understand myself better. And I think that's when I started to develop like a social justice um, type interest. And from there, I felt like the best intersection of my interest and what I had been learning was like public health. And so I decided I'm going to go to grad school to get my master's in public health, eventually get a Ph.D. in public health, studying epidemiology would be my focus and um, be more specific around like the social determinants of health. I wanted to do something around how do you mitigate health disparities and inequities that exist in the black community? That was my interest. So I go and get in my master's and that's, I'm committed to that, that goal, this PhD journey. And I remember having a mentor tell me um, in undergrad, he said, if you can intersect your passion and your talent to say, find your purpose. And so while I'm doing my graduate work, I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking, is this purpose aligned? And early on, like, I mean, the only way to do that is to do like this, like really deep reflection. 
And so I start this almost daily reflection process. And I remember early on in that journey, the answer was no, epidemiology is not that for you. And so the next question was, what is? And man, it's a humbling question if you spend a lot of time with yourself thinking about truly, what am I good at? It was my actual skill set. I knew my passions clearly, but the skill set piece was a lot harder to come by. And so I remember I spent months every day just taking time and thinking and trying to be really intentional about finding that alignment. And in that process, this idea came to me. And it only came to me when I decided, okay, I need to stop thinking about what is logical based on what I've done so far. It's like, I need to think about it as if I've never gone to school. If I was starting from day one, what would I do? And I think what was really influential is because I'm doing these projects, right? These epidemiological studies and epi for folk who might not be familiar, it's really a research methodology for studying disease. It's all about longitudinal observational studies. And so I'm in this process doing this work and I kept seeing like all these, like the, just the importance of controlling for educa- uh, education in these studies. And it's like when you're not accounted for education, even having an intervention and exposure outcome relationship, if you take out education, it looks different. And so for me, it just kept pointing me to like education might be more foundational to a person than their health. And so I kept thinking about that. And uh, I remember seeing some studies while I was in school. That really was one study. I remember saying, you have one black teacher a black student for a black student by the time they're in third grade. You're 13% more likely to enroll in college. I'm like, that's tremendous. But then the combinatory effect, if you had a second one, doesn't just go up from 13 to 15, not 13 to 20, not even 13 to 26 and double. It goes from 13 to 32. And so for me, I'm like, two people can have the ability to increase the likelihood of somebody who's 10 years old going to college by 32% is incredible. Um, And I think anecdotally, I understood that there was a lot of value there. But seeing those numbers and like these large scale studies, I think this one was produced by John Hopkins or Johns Hopkins. It just started to push me more in that direction. And so I, I kind of like committed. I'm like, I want to go and I want to teach. Um, I want to be in a community where I can have that impact on like hundreds of students over a course of a career, maybe even a thousand. And so once I decided to teach, the next question was where? And man, I'm thorough. If you give me a big decision, I'm going to spend a lot of time, do a lot of research, all of it. And so I'm doing this national search of different like alternative pathways into the classroom. I'm trying to figure out what are ways to get into the classroom. I don't have to get a second master's. I don't have to go get a second bachelor's. I'm like, I want to do something. I want to get in the classroom and see how I can do it. So I find all of these programs. But really, I was drawn to Minnesota because when I was doing my research, I remember seeing something that said, first thing I saw was this Forbes list. And it said Minnesota was the second best place for teachers. And I was like, Minnesota, that's interesting. So I look into it to see what went into that rating system. And I remember seeing a list that said the best public education systems in the country. And I remember number one was Massachusetts. Number two is Minnesota. I was like, there's no way. Minnesota is that good? And so I remember looking more into Minnesota and I saw another list. And it said the biggest black-white education achievement gaps. Number one was Wisconsin. Number two was Minnesota. And I'm like, how do both those things exist at the same time? How can you have this incredibly strong infrastructure for education that allows you to have one of the top two education environments in the country? But the inequity can be so pervasive and manifest explicitly in education like that, where you have the second largest education achievement gap. Around that same time, Minnesota had the lowest graduation rate 
in the nation for Black and Latinx students. And so that dichotomy is what drew me to Minnesota because I felt like, man, I, I might have oversimplified it, but it felt like this is a place where, again, that infrastructure is strong and you have a group of students who are really underserved. But if you have enough people who are pushing the needle, you can make significant changes for those people because everything you need for a strong education system is already there. And so that was what led me to come to Minnesota. And so the next piece, right, I decide I'm going to come to Minnesota. Well, knowing this about Minnesota, I'm like, I need Black educator affinity. Like, I need to be in spaces where folks look like me, understand me, all of it. And so I started Googling, what are Black education affinity groups in Minnesota? And I don't know what key term, whatever I searched, but it does not take much to come across Black men teach. So I see Black men teach. I'm like, okay, Black men teach. I'm a Black man and I'm a teacher. This is me. And so I'm looking into them and it was at the time, there wasn't a lot of information accessible online. You can get like an understanding, a, a basic idea of what they worked was. And so I'm looking, I'm like, okay, it looks like they work only with college students. And I'm like, hmm, not in college, so I won't qualify. I'm like, how else can I be involved? And so I reached out. They had an interim program director at the time. And I met somebody who knew a black man teacher and I asked him to connect me to him, get connected to him. And then I sit down with him. And I'm like, hey, man, you all have a really incredible board. You have all these people with this like this litany of experiences, former superintendents, current superintendents, these corporate folk, everything. I'm like, you have an organization about getting young black men into classrooms. You don't have the perspective of a black man who's been a classroom teacher. And I'm like, that's me. And I was like, you should tell your board that they should let me be a board member. And I knew I'm like, board members got to make a financial commitment. I got $1,000 for y'all a year. I was that committed. I'm like, I got you. The reason I was so committed from the jump was like, I'm, I've always been a firm believer. If you have your own personal mission in life and there's other people, organizations, things that are committed to doing the same thing, you might as well unite forces. And so for me, I'm like, one of the reasons I wanted to be a teacher was like, I wanted to increase the number of teachers of color because I understood the impact. Even before I stepped foot in the classroom, that was already a part of my mission. Uh, just because I believe so firmly in the data and just a personal anecdote, I grew up with black teachers. And so like me, two months into being in Minnesota, apartment not even furnished fully, I'm already reaching out to black men teachers, like, let me sit on your board. And so have that conversation with him. He goes back to the board. They come back to him and they're like, nah, <laughs> they say, no, we're good. I'm like, okay, I can't blame him. You know, I don't know much about boards. So I came back a couple months later and I'm like, okay, I got a new idea. You know, I'm just one person. I just started teaching. I can do this. I'll find a group of black male elementary school teachers. I'll convene them and they can serve as an advisory council. I'll sit on your board as a non-voting member and I'll lead that advisory council and I'll make sure that the actions of the board, since you have no executive director, no leader, are in, a, in alignment with the perspective of current classroom teachers. So I brought him that idea. He was like, okay, that sounds good. He takes it back to the board. They come back again. They're like, nah, we're good. And so I'm like, okay. A couple of months later, come back with another idea. This time I'm like, what's going on with the college programming? And the interim program director at the time was like working on some stuff. And so I'm like, look, let me help you. Whatever you need, I got you. So we sit down, kind of do some planning and we decide like we want to do this college cohort program and they need somebody to do the programming, somebody to recruit the college students. They need all these things that happen. I'm like, that's me. I got it. So that's how I got introduced to Black Matij as a in a consulting fashion.
Now, around that same time, they actually, the year prior, had an application for executive director, but I failed it for some reason. I'm not sure why. Fast forward a year later, I'm now contracted as this consultant while I'm teaching, and this application for executive director opens up at the same time. Now, when I saw it, I looked at it immediately. It was like, this is my dream job. No question. This is my dream job. I saw it. I knew it. I looked. And I'm like, I cannot wait to apply for it in seven years when I'm ready. And I remember like talking to all my friends and they were like, yeah, this is you, man. This is all you talk about. This is this is you. And I'm like, yep, I can't wait, man. Like five, six, seven years from now, you know, be in this position. I got this much experience in the classroom. I've done all these things and I'll be ready, you know. And I had one friend, man, Stephen Waddell, who just pushed me. He just kept pushing me. He was like, man, look, apply. Just apply. Let them tell you no. Don't tell yourself no. And I ended up putting my name in the head. And I only could justify it by saying in my mind, five years from now, you have a little bit of a leg up on the competition because you get a chance to see the, in, the internal piece of the application process. Many of them won't have applied now when they're applying for it later in the future when it opens up again. So that's how I talked myself into it and put my name in the head and just kept making it to the next round. I honestly never really felt like I was going to be the one they selected. Never was never confident, not even when I was a finalist and there were like two other people. Never thought it was going to be me. Wow. And so you got your dream job from what sounds like incredible passion and persistence. I think that's like a such a powerful example when you're, you know, you're so passionate about a cause and what you believe in and just keep going and you they kept saying no to your ideas and you keep going back. That's pretty incredible. I mean, and, and also like the, how you're able to recognize like, Hey, it's really important to get a black male teacher's perspective on this and like trying to really push for that. I'd have to imagine it's kind of deflating, you know, those couple of times when the board's like, no, we're good. You know, like we don't need that perspective or we'll just keep doing it from the boardroom. Like I'd have to imagine that a lot of situations like that happen at organizations, right? Where it's like really hard to kind of be like, no, we need this perspective. No, we need this. So like the fact that you, you know, you kept fighting for that and being the position you're in is pretty inspiring. Yeah. You know, I, I just, part of it was selfish too. Like I just really wanted to help. It's like, I just wanted to be a part of it. I didn't want to like watch from a distance. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to just keep coming back with ideas. And I knew like it was never me presenting. It was always someone presenting on my behalf. So I never heard how they responded to it. But I just I just knew like, you know, I want to be in these spaces. Also, I wanted to meet the people. I'm like, these are some pretty like people doing some good things. Like, let me be proximate to them as well. And so I'm just like, let me push, let me push, let me see. And I don't know, man. I just feel like I've always been naturally persistent, especially when like I really want something. I don't know if hearing like no or hearing no response has never been a big deterrent. It's just like, okay, I gotta ask a different way. And it's like, as long as I'm not hearing like, no, don't hit us up again. Don't reach out ever again. I think I'm good. Just keep coming. Yeah, you know, Marcus, as you know, the education system is, you know, a powerful example of the importance and impact of seeing yourself in authority figures like teachers. You know, on your website, it states how studies that looked at black boys in elementary grades who did or didn't have a black male teacher showed dramatically different outcomes. So those with a black male teacher were 29% less likely to drop out of school years later. And this number was 39% for very low income black students. You know, this is such an issue in so many school districts. Take the Minneapolis and St. Paul public school systems, for example. It serves approximately 70% students of color, while the teacher core is only 17% of color. So obviously a, 
a huge gap there. So talked a lot about numbers and numbers are powerful. And, and you, you dropped some numbers earlier too, that just really speak to the need here. Can you talk a little bit more about why students seeing themselves and teachers is so important? And even from like a mental, emotional standpoint too, what, what does that do for students? And did you have any experiences with having a teacher you could see yourself in and, and what did that do for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's just like a few different ways I can go about answering them. There's my experience as a teacher, experience as a student, right? Um, even I got stories from my, my men who are in the classroom now and I hear all the things that are going on with them. I mean, when I think about myself growing up, I had, I think my first black teacher was in third grade. So I'd be one of those like positive statistics for sure. And my first black male teacher was in seventh grade. And I mean, my favorite teacher of all time was one of a black woman teacher who I had in my junior year of high school. And so, I mean, it's just like, I feel like the power of representation can't be understated. Having people who understand you, who have shared experiences, who just get it, who speak the same like language, who validate you, who affirm you. I mean, it's incredibly important. When I was in the classroom, I mean, that was like a huge part of my teaching. Like it was a huge part. I taught fifth and sixth grade and I taught science for both uh, those grades. But we always took time out. So when I was teaching science in fifth grade, the first unit of the year is about matter, right? There's four units. The first one is matter. And we came up with this series and I named it Dark Matter. And I'm trying to think of exactly how I contextualize it, but it's some corny. It was like dark matter is this powerful force that the force is so strong that it like creates black holes, which have the power of sucking up light or some, something like that, right? And I, and I use that to tell my students, like, you don't often hear about this. And it was like related to this idea of how like the power in the historical context of like what black and brown people have done are often unheard, but are, have like this incredible power and significance to them. Now, when I said it to them, it made a lot more sense and it was a lot more well put together than what I just said now. And what we did, though, is every single Wednesday of the week, we took out time from class to just talk about something historical, never from a positive perspective. Like I had fifth and sixth grade kids who could tell you about HBCUs and they could tell you about people who've attended them. They could just tell you, like, I remember we took time out to talk about like the Mali Empire. It's like 18th century and talking about Mansa Musa and we talk about Kwanzaa and we talk about all of these different things related to like black, brown, indigenous history. Because I wanted my kids historically informed. I wanted them to feel like proud of who they are. I wanted them to be affirmed in their identities. The school I taught at was like 99% student of color and like 90 plus percent African-American and African. I mean, we had a Black History Month project where I had my kids write about why they're proud to be Black. And I feel like, especially in a place like Minnesota, you don't get enough affirmations when you're young. And I feel like one of the most important things a Black teacher does for their students is help them build a strong, positive racial identity. And I feel like without Black teachers, like kids don't really experience that in school. And it's very easy to start picking up societal messages that speak negatively about who you are to a Black student. It's real easy. So you need people who are active, incredibly intentional, and actively mitigating that and helping you build this positive identity in yourself. And so, I mean, I felt like that was a big part of my job. And I loved it. Even when I think about my very first week in the classroom, I had a student who was considered like a problem student. Often before the school year starts and like those professional developments, like teachers will kind of talk. They'll either review behavior data from the year before and they'll see like 
numbers of send outs, referrals, all those things. And then there's students who naturally rise to the top. And I had a student who was like that, naturally rose to the top because of their behavior. And in my mind, hearing the conversation, they were considered like a problem child. And they were in my homeroom class. And I remember my very first week of teaching, she comes up to me, she's like, Mr. Flynn, you're my favorite teacher. I'm like, why? Why do you say that? And she was like, because you look like me. And that same student, I remember the very end of the year, my instructional, excuse me, my instructional coach was in my class. And she was like, in our debrief session, she said, Marcus, this student is your most active participant. It's the same student who was labeled as a problem child coming into the school year. Same one. And I think a big piece of it was like relationships and the fact that she felt like I was her favorite teacher because I looked like her and I identified like her. I think that changed the way she experienced school. And she performed like well academically. And a lot of my students did too. Um, had some, like tremendous growth for the course of the year. I think a big part of that is my students had someone who identified like them. I mean, I played R&B music every day when they came to class. Or I played like Afro beats and introduced them to that. A lot of my kids, I think, felt there was probably like a familial relationship. I think they probably felt like just really comfortable with me because I probably remember reminded them of people at home. That's so powerful, Marcus. And a word that keeps jumping to mind as you're telling that story is expectations. A line from a black male teacher in one of the videos on your website really sticks out to me. He said that he has had so many white teachers who already had their mind made up about us before we walked into the classroom. And black teachers didn't do that to me. You know, that's that's really powerful. And it kind of goes along with, with what you were talking about and having these students who are deemed by some as problem students or, but really maybe that has to do with expectations. And a stat on your website reflects that as well. Black and brown students who have had a teacher of the same race or ethnicity are held to high expectations 66% of the time compared to only 35% of the time when they have a teacher who did not share their race or identity. So in the education system, what needs to be done to change the low expectations that are given to black and brown students? Again, that's a great question. So I'm going to answer it and remind me the last part if I don't get to it, but what needs to be done? Because I think people don't understand how important expectations are when it comes to teaching. And I'm going to talk about two studies, and I think it'll help provide a lot of context around like the implications expectations have. The first is really around this unconscious bias that exists for Black students. So a little outside of expectations, but still. So there's a study, it was a 2016 Yale study. And what they did was they had this video of four children sitting around the table and they were playing with like manipulatives. And the students were a black boy, black girl, a white boy, white girl sitting around the table. And the group of researchers gave the teachers an assignment to watch this video and click when they see misbehavior. Now there's a caveat to the study. Absolutely no misbehaviors going on at all. They're using the eye tracking software to see when the teachers are given this assignment to identify misbehavior, where do they spend their time looking? And the study showed that the teachers spent 42% of the time in the study looking at just a black boy. And it's important to know that because, like, again, these are preschool students. And we look at national data on suspensions of preschool students. What you'll see are, is black students represent 18% of the preschool population, but they represent 48% of all preschool students who are suspended. So black students are 3.6 times more likely to be suspended than white preschool students. 
And it goes to these like expectations of who do you think is most likely to misbehave? And you unconsciously spend more time looking for misbehavior from those students. Behavior is really about, really about interpretation. And I remember even when I was teaching, I remember I would hear other teachers talk about students and I would be like, huh, you talking about him? From when I hear the way that these people describe students, because like it's just an entirely different interpretation of behavior. And sometimes you need people who identify the same as their students to really understand their behavior better. Now, there's another study I want to talk about that really nails home this idea that expectations from a teacher are critical. This one's an older study. It's from 1968. Um, and I think the reason it's so old and hasn't really been re- replicated is like somewhat unethical. And so it was like, I think, three different classrooms. And really what this is called, it's like the Pygmalion effect, which is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the study didn't establish that, right? They got these three different classrooms and they tell these group of teachers, okay, we tested all these students. And we've identified like this group of kids, a small little subset of kids as having unusual potential for growth within this year. Now, of course, nothing unique about these kids. Probably didn't even test them. Randomly select some kids, say that these group of students have unusual potential for growth over the course of this year. Come back eight months later at the end of the school year. What do they see? These group of kids that they identified are performing better than everyone else in the classroom. Why is that? Well, teachers believe that these students have more potential than everyone else. They believe that these are the ones who have that potential for growth. And so teacher expectations have implications on how students view themselves, but also how students perform in the class. And so black students are on this negative side of those expectations from the time that they're five years old. We got 13 years of expectations in that same study that talked about how black students are held to higher expectation twice as likely when they have a black teacher also talks about how black teachers or non-black teachers relative to black teachers are more likely to see black black students as frequently inattentive, less likely to believe they'll complete their homework, less likely to believe they'll perform on grade level. So it's like a lot. Less likely to believe they'll go to college. Expectations mean a lot. It's one of those things that's not spoken about enough, but has like tremendous implications, especially when you think about what that does over time. Right? That Pygmalion effect was established in one year, one academic year. What would they have seen if they looked at 13 years of that same thing? So I will remind you, cover what, what can be done. <laughs> I think that was the last part of the question. And I'm curious, too, just if, if, you know, of course, our target audience are white men, if they're teachers, you know, is there anything white teachers, white male teachers can do, too, in the classroom to make positive change for their students? It's awesome, though, that you referenced the Pygmalion effect, though. It's something that I actually use quite a bit in, in the, the leadership development I do. Uh, see, I knew I was going to forget that last part, so I appreciate it. <laughs> so when I was teaching and I was grade team lead, um, I kind of instituted a few different things. So I felt like it was important. Again, the school I taught at was 99% students of color, and I was the only black teacher on staff. And so my grade team were like two young white women who I think were great teachers, but still to some limitations when it comes to relating to their students' experiences. So one of the things we instituted was a journal club. What we would do, we would find articles on best practices around like educating a diverse group of students. We would talk about it and we maybe do it once a month. We would read and one of us would lead a presentation on these things. And so it just was good for us to stay up to date, literature and black empirically, what's the best practice? And I'll always be thinking about that and how do we institute those things. Another thing that I instituted was um, 
everyone, I'm like, everyone needs to see themselves in your classroom. And it's like in what you read and how the classroom's designed, like the assignments, like everyone has to see themselves with like regularity. And so we were always intentional about trying to bring in specific things. And it was hard. Like one of my teachers was mad, but like we were committed to it. There's this idea of making sure that everybody was seen and represented regularly in the classroom. And I mean, you could do that regardless of what race you are as a teacher. Everything I'm saying, you can do. The last piece um, we instituted was like it was mandated outside hours. I don't remember how many hours it was. It was something that we agreed on that was supposed to be reasonable. But it was mandated outside hours. And we considered outside hours like time where you're in the student's community or their space and you're not the leader. You know, you're not the one who's making the decisions. You're there as a participant. And so it's like, okay, you got to go to their game, to their practice, to their recital, to something, right? And if you can't get to anything, you got to go grocery shopping on the north side just to be in the space where you're not the one who's like leading and you are a participant. You, you are engaging in their culture. If they invite you to a barbecue, that's perfect. Be there, enjoy it, explore it. And so those were, to me, critical things for thinking about like, okay, my teachers don't have this background, but it's like, we're going to do our best to make sure our students are still supported. So I, I think those are things that to me feel practical and reasonable. I think another thing too, is just like, you got to be humble and you definitely got to like have relationships with their parents. And like parents are the experts of the children. We might be the experts when it comes to the pedagogical piece, but like they know their kid for seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years before they come to you. And I don't think you're going to know that kid better than them in three months. And so be humble, learn from the parent, build that relationship early, be intentional about it. That'll help. Having strong relationships with parents is critical. And Black Men Teach, we do an annual barbecue. Bring out all the students of our teachers, their families to a park, give them food, play games, do stuff. So our teachers get a chance to meet their parents that first weekend of school, early on in the school year. And would do it before the school year started if class lists were in place. Paul and I have talked a lot about redefining leadership in a sense and and being really humble. And I, I really like that example of, you know, a teacher taking themselves out of the environment where like, you know, they're clearly the authoritative figure, clearly like trying to do the teaching and there's the student dynamic, but removing you know, yourself humbly from that situation and trying to connect in different ways and and trying to show, you know, and that's, that's a way to be a leader, right? Like it doesn't always have to be in that authoritative sense. It can be, Hey, let's meet on the same level. Actually, you teach me things and like being able to kind of learn and grow in that way. I mean, that's the best way to be a leader, right? Like that's how to make a connection. Yeah, I agreed. And, you know, we talk, Ken and I talk a lot about this podcast about as, as being white men, we've been socially conditioned to be overconfident, right? And feeling like we should be in power and deserve to be in positions or more comfortable in positions of power. So I think it's a really strong and important reminder to be intentional about finding time and space and opportunities to not be in power. And I think, you know, for us as white men, we need to recognize that's going to be uncomfortable, but just to, to be mindful of that. And, but it, it takes intentional effort is what I'm hearing from you. you. You have to find opportunities. It's not really going to happen organically necessarily, but to be intentional about being in spaces and opportunities where you're not in power. You know, I, I love the holistic approach that black men teach takes to address all of the challenges faced by black male teacher candidates. 
you know, you really focus on creating the environment and conditions where black male teachers can thrive. So you address recruitment, training options and cost, induction, school culture, meaningful career paths, and adequate compensation. So of all those six, if there is one, if you could choose one or two that really stick out to you as being, you know, the biggest barriers, what what would you choose and why would you choose those? Man, the biggest barrier to the work that we do is the school culture. It's, that's the hardest piece, man. It, it's 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 the one piece that I have no control over. Seriously, it's 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 hard, and it's like you have these spaces that, like, we do elementary school, right? So one, there's like this intersection of two different things, independent of each other, but very important. Nationally, we know 1.7 percent of all teachers are black men. So just not a lot of black men in education. And in Minnesota, it's significantly fewer. We estimate that about less than half of 1% of all teachers in the state of Minnesota are black men. It's 220 out of 63,436 active teachers. So that's one piece, right? You just don't have a lot of black men in education. So that in itself is isolated. Now you have to conflate that with the fact that in elementary school, nationally, 89% of all elementary school teachers are women. You got 11% men in elementary so you have this incredible underrepresentation of black men. You have this incredible underrepresentation of just men in general in elementary school. So our men walk into this space, right? I said in Minnesota, there's 63,000 something teachers, about 220 are black men. Of that, probably 50 or less are elementary school teachers. And so bringing black men into a space where historically they have not existed is a challenge, right? And schools aren't... <laughs> just already just inherently set up to be a place that's warm, receptive, and conducive to retaining our men. And that's a real challenge. It's a real big challenge. I don't have a great answer for it right now. I'm in the process of trying to develop one, man. But fellas, I do not have it. It's it's hard. It is legitimately hard. It's a challenge. Well, Penny, yeah. for your thoughts, what what are you trying to cook up? What are you working on in your mind right now? Great question. So I think the the biggest decision I can ever really make outside of like hiring staff is probably identifying the right partner school. So I'm in the process of developing this thing. I call it a school equity audit tool. So it's my seat assessment, right? It's corny as hell, but it's like thinking about equity of like everyone having a seat at the table. So it's my seat assessment. So I, I my plan is to give it to schools I'll give it to the administrators. Then I also give a similar one to the teaching staff and then one to the associate educator, paraprofessional behavior specialist staff. Because that's typically where you see the most representation in the school, just in general. And we'll weigh the response a little bit heavier for people of color. And then we'll compare across all three levels to see, one, what are just general strengths or weaknesses that these schools have? But what are the disparities between what they think is happening, the administrative level versus what's happening? the associate educator level. And it'll give us an idea, something quantifiable around like where are schools at when it comes to how equitable they are, how close they are to be in a school that'd be good to placement. I'm gonna have all my school partners take that assessment. And if they, they do do bad, if they do too poorly on it, we're gonna replace them, in all honesty. If they do poorly, but there's room for improvement, we'll help them get better. But if it just shows, if we take this and it shows like this school is just not, ready for it for, for our men. I'm not going to spend three, four, five years trying to get them ready while my men are like being lost at the same time. If you have a high attrition rate, 
of black men while you're trying to increase the number of black male teachers, it's like filling a bucket with a hole at the bottom, right? Like it's possible, but you got to fill that thing super fast. You're going to keep losing a lot of water. And so for me, I'm like, I want to retain my men. I want my men to get into the classroom, have all the supports that they need. And we have supports in place with black men teach that I think are pretty compelling and helpful. I need to make sure that the schools don't get in our way and that they're supporting our men as well. It should be symbiotic. And I think we have some good relationships now, right? Which is why they're our partners. But I'm still in the process of finalizing that list because I don't know if it's the best. I want to make sure we have the absolute best list of schools possible for us to place our men so we can be successful. You know, when I was looking at that list, Marcus, just number four of the six, I was like, oh, it's it's got to be school culture, right? Like even before you answered, because, you know, culture is something that Paul and I, we talk a lot about on this podcast. And even when we don't intend to, we always seem to come around a lot on culture. And, you know, we I, we really think we need a culture change on so many fronts. And you know, we talk a lot about cultures in the workplaces and how they need to change to become more equitable, where everyone can belong and no dominant norms dictate value. And we talk a lot about culture within white men to change the norm where we need to do more, have more open and vulnerable talks about race, privilege, the impacts of our and other groups' memberships. So the, the culture is something that we really discuss a lot. And we think is so important in, in really creating equity and equitable systems. And you know, what you're describing is what I saw a lot. And, you know, my years of doing nonprofit work is we could have the best talent pipeline in the world. And we had incredible young, diverse talent pipeline trying to diversify an industry. But like, if you, you know, if you show up and the culture at organizations just don't support or don't understand or don't have zero cultural fluency, it's like you said, the hole in the bottom of that bucket, right? It just, it's, it really needs to be culture change. And as excited as I was and how much I loved what black men teach are doing, I'm even more so now. I want to keep following, you know, the work that you discover when you start to do the work on that culture change. Cause that's, man, that's, that's really what a lot of this work comes down to. And I have like such ambitious dreams. I don't think black men teach has scratched the surface yet. I remember I walked in, I got hired my first day. I was thinking about like Black Men Teach is a national organization. We're not there yet, but I just saw that from the moment I started and I still see it. And it's like, we got a lot to build to, a lot to work to. Nowhere near the capacity will be when it comes to staff or funding and anything, but it's like, there's so much that needs to be done. And also like the students in Minnesota, I I just feel like they can't wait. Like they need the support that we can provide. And the more well-trained, well-prepared, strong practitioners, diverse educators we can get into elementary schools, the better our community is going to be. So for me, I feel like a sense of urgency every day. Just like I feel like I got stuff to do every single day because the community needs the work that we're trying to provide. And I feel like we can do it. So Marcus, last question for you. As a parent, I have a, a two-year-old and a 10-month-old. And Paul, you have one about a year and a half or so, I believe. So we're not quite to elementary years yet, but it's coming. And, you know, I want to ensure that my children's schools have environments that recruit and support black male teachers where they and all teachers of color can thrive. So what can I do as a white male in the community or what can community members in general, what can we do to support those efforts? Yeah, I feel like everyone has a platform, right? Like you have a podcast. 
You got a nice listening base of people who care. And I feel like this is you doing that, right? This is support, like to a T. This is this is great to just allow us to spread the message of Black Men Teach, what we do, who we are. I mean, we're a nonprofit, so I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, people can support and donate or they can connect us to the organization they work with. Like we're established 501c3. And so if you work for a company that has a philanthropic arm, connect us. I would love to talk to them. If there's like gatherings, honestly, I think one thing I really want to get into as a nonprofit, it's like if people want to host personal gathering of their friends or has to tell the story, I would love to come. I think that's one thing that we have not done that I would love to do. We have events if you want to support. I mean, we're in the process of developing like a volunteer list. If people want to volunteer, they can do that. Um, but just share the message with your friends. I want I want Black Men Teach to be one of the most well-known nonprofits in the Twin Cities. I want people to know that name like they know United Way. I want our name to just resonate. I want people to know. I want it to be like, oh, of course, Black Men Teach. Like, I want it to be like, yeah, of course, who doesn't? I, I need us to get there. So tell people, keep telling them. And yeah, donations always help. <laughs> yes, donations always. Yeah. I'm curious, I'm going a little off script here, so work with me here. But I'm, I was just, as you've been talking, I've been thinking back through my educational career. And I don't think I had a black male teacher until college. And I'm just, all I could, all I could be doing as I'm thinking about this, all I'm thinking about is what, what have I been missing out on? And I'm sorry if that's like a selfish question, but I, I really think there's, I'm curious if there's anything you've thought of, of like what white kids miss out on without having a black teacher in general, but a black male teacher. I'm just really happy you can ask that question about our kids. Cause I, I, I'm thinking about that too. And where my daughter is going to go to school and just what, what do you think I missed out on right throughout my educational career? And what impact do you think that that might have on on white folks without having that in the classroom? There was a, a study. It was like a, done by Donor Choose. It was a report that came out. It was the largest report that's ever examined specifically black male educators. One of the things that they said there were like black male teachers spend more time than any other race, gender group building relationships with their students and mentoring their students. They spend more time than anyone. Um, and I can imagine it. Like I remember when I was teaching. Like for me, lunch was always fun, right? Like we go to lunch, I'm sitting with my kids, I'm hopping back and forth between my different kids' tables. And like other teachers would be standing around like monitoring, which is like perfect. So I'm like, I don't want to do that. I just want to be with my students. And I feel like a lot of us come to the profession because there's so few of us, right? I think I have a pretty good idea. I mean, I know a fair amount of black male teachers. I have these conversations like a lot of black men come to the profession very, very intentionally. And it's really about like, I'm not saying other teachers don't, but okay, I'll say this. There's a person in this field named Sharif el Mackey. To me, he's like the godfather of this space. And I remember him talking about a small study he conducted with his colleagues and the black men he were working with the same. So his black male colleagues. And the average age that the white female colleagues or white women colleagues first heard they should be a teacher was like nine years old. So like third grade. The average age when the black male teachers heard they should be a teacher for the first time was like 23. And so like a lot of people who come to this profession weren't dreaming of being teachers their entire life. A lot of us weren't even like had a strong affinity for school. A lot of us come later in life after we've done this like introspective process, kind of like I detailed in the in my introduction around like 
it's my purpose and my calling is to really uplift these students this specific way because I know my skill set. I know what I do. I know what I can give and what I can't. And so I feel like when we come to the profession, man, it's like this real unique intersection of like someone who's called and someone who understands himself and someone who knows how to like uplift and build students, which is why when I saw that Donor's Shoes report and it talked about how Black male teachers spend more time mentoring. They spend more time socializing and building relationships with students. I wasn't surprised because I'm like, oh, that was me. <laughs> like, that was me. I was the one who did that for sure. And when I talk to my men and I hear their stories and they tell me about students, it's the same thing with them. And I think when white children have Black male teachers in particular, I think it does a lot to undermine some unconscious biases. And I think, like, that's big. You see Black men in a, in a role that, like, a teacher has... Like when I used to tell people as a teacher, there's certain assumptions they make. Everyone has an idea of an archetype of a teacher, right? And a lot of those things are positive. Also, on the other end of what you think of when you get, like society paints a picture of Black men that's not always positive and oftentimes negative. And so having Black male teachers gives you an opportunity to see Black men in real life who are there, who are caring, who are nurturing, that are there for you to help develop you. And I think that does take away some of that unconscious bias that just inevitably builds up in everybody. And so, yeah, I think that's big. I think that's important for all students. It's it's so important, and it's and it's kind of the way I forget the wording you said, but it is an actual relationship with a black male. I mean, I've read tons of books, right, about unconscious bias, right. I've read I've read tons of books about the racial bias I hold towards black folks and black men, but and that helps, right, intellectually, right. But to have mm-hmm. that actual emotional relational connection. As one I've taken away from this would have been so beneficial for me, especially at an early age, right? When the brain is still really developing, it would have been it would have been huge. So it's it's one of those things that can I talk about how racism and white supremacy have harmed us too, right? As as white folks, as white men, and I see that as one of those harmful impacts. Yeah, you know. Oh, sorry, real quick. Oh, go ahead. Um, One of our teachers, his name is Mr. White, probably one of our more well known teachers because we did a lot of promotion around him. He was telling a story at a gala about these two young white girl students he has, and they call themselves his shadow because they like follow him around and all that. And those girls and a collection of other girls made a song about him or made a poem for him. And it was just about like, thank you. And it's incredible. I mean, he'll also tell you a story of how he had, he's a fifth grade teacher. And one of his students, a white boy, moved from fifth grade to sixth grade, so left elementary to go to middle school. And he had a younger sister who was like, in kindergarten or first grade at the time, and now is in either first or second. And she won't leave the school building without saying goodbye to Mr. White because the impact he had on her brother. And so, like, you're right. Because developmentally where students are when they're that young, that's why we focus on elementary school. And there's so much positive that's done when you have this diverse representation of people in your life who care for you and pour into you at an early age because it sets, like, a lot of those foundational things. And your beliefs, and especially for like students of color, how you see yourself, all of those things are important. And like, again, we're not always thinking about these things, but they happen subconsciously. And it's important for us as adults to be intentional about making sure that we're creating an environment for all these subconscious developments to happen in a positive way. So that's why it's so important at that early age. A lot of people say like, Black men teach working against itself in terms of trying to be successful by limiting yourself to elementary school. Well, yes, it's hard to get men in elementary, but the benefit of getting them there is significantly disproportionate relative if we just focused on high school. Might be easier to get men to do high school, 
more beneficial to get them to do elementary. That's incredible, Marcus. I mean, what important work. I couldn't be more of a supporter of your work. And thank you for telling our listeners what we can all do to you know, spread the word. And I'll say again, check out their website and donate and, and just keep talking about you know what you can do to support it. Because yeah, I mean, even at the end, like the conversation, it really is. It's so important. Like you said, I hope this is national someday. I, th- I hope that it's just the impact continues to grow. And we really appreciate you taking the time and we really appreciate you telling us your story and about your work. And it's just been an absolute pleasure. And I know our listeners gained a lot from this as well. So thank you. I'm looking forward to continuing to see the great work you do and supporting any way we can. And we we just really appreciate it. No, thank you all. I I appreciate it. I appreciate you all giving me an opportunity to tell the story and um, introducing people to Black Men Teach if they're more familiar. Man, the the ending of that conversation, Paul, that was almost gave me, like you said in the intro, like, you know, goosebumps about, you know, he talked about how bad he wants this to work and how much of a need it is and how the children can't wait. And I'm like, yeah, totally. That's where I'm at after that conversation. Like, I really want this to be successful and expand for people to know about it. And we talked about our kids at the end. I love the question that you had too about what white students miss out on as well without this. And that's, gosh, it just all comes back down to that, I feel like, in so much of this work. It's just like, you know what, equity, anti-racism work, ending racism, it's so good for everyone, right? And we just can't preach that enough. It's the sum of us. Everyone go read Heather McGee, right? And it's just like, man, I want when our kid, we were talking about our kids, when our kids get to school, it's like, man, I want them to have diverse teachers. I need, I want them to have that experience, that growth, check those unconscious biases when they're young. I mean, it's just, you know, I knew it was important. And after that conversation, I'm like even more fired up about how, how important it is. Yeah, agreed. It's, I think I may have mentioned this, but we have our daughter go to a Spanish immersion daycare. And it's just made me thinking about how much she's learning just being immersed in that and, and immersed in a culture where they, they really don't speak much English at all. I mean, when I go there, the teachers are speaking Spanish to each other. They're, they're speaking Spanish to the kids. So it just was really reaffirming to just even starting her out at a really young age to really expose her to what the world really is and our country really is, right? A multicultural experience. And, you know, I, I wish I would have had that growing up and, you know, I'm, I'm catching up now, I feel like, but, you know, it really speaks to, you know, the work that Black, Black Men Teach does. And, and Marcus is just, I found it so interesting how he was hyper-focused on getting Black men teachers in elementary school. And he was just being, he was very unapologetic about that. And like, that is where the most impact is going to happen. And he just is, is unwavering with that. So I just, I was really, really impressed with he, he knows where the most impact will be, and he just goes after it and and uh, is very self-assured in that sense. So just really loved learning from him and, and um, got, of course, got the wheels turning as usual. We have guests here on the Modern White Man, and of course, it was, wasn't long enough. But either way, it was, uh, it was a great learning experiences. And yeah, I wish we had more time with him. No, we spare our guests <laughs> at least with our rambling. We've done, we've we've had to reel it in. I'm the same. I'm like, man, I had I could have had like seven. We could have gone down seven additional yeah. roads with with that because it's totally as the wheels turning. And 
Um, to spare you all from us trying to ramble off where our head is going, we'll continue to do what we've done with our most recent guests where we will write up our takeaways and we will put them online. So we can have time to really listen back and think about it and be intentional about that. So check that out. It's on our blog section of our website and you can read about what our takeaways were from our conversation with Marcus Flynn from Black Men Teach and the really important work that they do. Again, a huge thank you to Marcus Flynn. I really appreciate the time and really appreciate him joining us. Check out Black Men Teach, support Black Men Teach. You know, and gosh, you know, equity work and ending racism, it is just a giant ecosystem, isn't it? It's not just in the workplace. It's not just in the, you know, city hall. It's not just in the education system. It has to be everything. And it's like, I feel like we we learned about a, a new, really important arm to that. And so thankful for the learning that Marcus provided to us. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. As always, you're a visual learner. Well, don't fret. YouTube channel where we will post this conversation with Marcus. You can watch the video and all of the interviews with our guests. You can also sign up for our newsletter on our website, www.themodernwhiteman.com. Again, you can check out the blog section on that website as well. Please subscribe. You know, last time, Paul, we asked for five stars. We got one more five star rating. Followed through. So, I appreciate you. Who are you out there? We give you five stars back emotionally and mentally. <laughs> so if you uh, if you want to get an emotional five star back from us, please feel free to go uh, rate and review the show. That really does help us spread this along. So thanks everybody. Until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work.